wording on my end, because uh, rather than pre-talking it, perhaps you can explain to me and the audience what's happening here. Okay, uh, my project is that um, I'm an artist, uh, I live in Norway, and um, I've had this idea that I want to make portraits of people I find interesting, that have interesting uh, intellectual, mental lives, uh, not just... Uh, uh, yeah, well, yeah, uh, and um, portraits historically in art history is, you know, the visual, the face, the, the you know, all this uh, external um, looks, and um, I'm interested in what's going on inside the mental landscape of, uh, of people, and, and, and the idea is to try to manifest that through a conversation instead of yeah sounds interesting i'm game it reminds me of uh james joyce uh had a very expressionist portrait painted of him once that was very abstract and uh it, someone showed it to his father and his dad said oh i see james has changed in the years since <laughs> i've known him so <laughs> i don't know what this is going to look like but hey i'm game let's try it very good um yeah we could we can talk more after I think it's better if sure. I, I can explain more after. Yeah. So um, my video is off, and uh, I'm, you can you can have your video on if you want to. It doesn't matter because I'm just going to look at, yeah. at uh, the drawing. And then I'd like you to start just talking about your relationship to sound and music. Where would I even begin? Well, okay, I've certainly never been asked that question before. Um, what can I say? Uh, I am not primarily an audio-centered learner. I don't think I understand or experience the world primarily through my audio faculty. But I do, of course, appreciate music. Um, and I think that, <laughs> for some reason, that always strikes people as funny, or they never, ever peg me for that. Uh, I've always had hipster friends who are always, you know, interested in the latest band that no one's ever heard of and what have you. And they uh, generally will scoff at my <laughs> my lack of musical knowledge. But when I like something musically, uh, I like it deeply and I think about it deeply. And I think ab about not just the way a song sounds, but the way it's structured um, you know, is it verse, chorus, verse, chorus, or is there something more interesting going on? What is it about it that makes it hooky? You know, what what is interesting about this sound that you know, we can get under the hood and see how it works? And uh, so I've thought deeply about music and sound for a long time. Um, it doesn't really define my life, but perhaps more so in recent years as I have... Uh, I took guitar lessons when I was younger, and I have uh, since taken them back up and started a band so um i have more of a connection to my musical side these days uh is it is it instrumental music you're talking it about? is not it is a good old traditional rock band with singing and all of that mm -hmm. but, but when you're talking about uh, your experience uh, of music and the dissecting of the uh should we say architecture of it is it primarily instrumental music then, or is it... I would say at at my most base level, I think I'm primarily a jazz fan. So it is primarily, and primarily instrumental jazz. So yeah, I would say that. Um, but obviously I listen to a lot of rock and 
popular music of various sorts. So, um, but I, yeah, I, uh, well, I, I guess there's a, maybe there's a difference, right? Um, if I'm listening to something in the, in some popular music genre, I'm examining the structure differently than if I was listening to a jazz song. But for, for, you'll notice for me, it, it often comes back to the intellectual <laughs> side of things and trying to dissect things and analyze them. <laughs> yeah. What about the, uh, how it affects you? Emotionally, do you yeah. like to dance? Well, I think I, I imagine, like everybody else, I can be affected emotionally by music. Um, depends on the music, happy music, sad music, whatever. Of course, I mean that's just a human response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Um, you play music also, do you? Or I, I try. <laughs> I'm getting better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you have um, a collection of records? Uh, not vinyl, if that's what you're asking. But yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, certainly I have a music collection that I listen to. And uh, but but not not records, CDs. Uh, yeah, well, it used to be CDs. Now, primarily, it is just digital, just ones and zeros, which I know. Uh, is not <laughs> it's not the best way to do it especially because ones and zeros can be censored and or scrubbed in various ways whereas vinyl is there until it physically deteriorates or melts but uh at this point i do not have a turntable no mm. is is art and music to you is it important uh, like in, in the yeah, of course. When I was uh, younger, I primarily, my first passion and the thing that I wanted to be was a writer. So um, it was primarily prose was generally my, my thing. And I was very interested in that. I wanted to pursue that. I uh, was definitely inclined and geared towards that. I was in the act of pursuing that, actually, just before I started the Corbett Report. I um, had written one and a half manuscripts of novels. I had written a bunch of short stories. Uh, I was very, very serious about that until uh, reality intervened and I started learning this information and I ended up becoming a podcaster. That was a left turn I didn't expect. But I do think that my passion for language and literature does is reflected in my work. Not only have I done the film literature New World Order series, but I also... I. I take pride in my writing, and I do write lengthy and detailed editorials that I think are generally, uh, who am I to say, but I think they're generally well-written. <laughs> so I, I am applying my passion for, for language and literature in the way that I can uh, in the work that I do. Um, but I still plan to return to that at some point and actually publish some actual fiction. Do you find freedom in language? Yes. In fact, it's incredibly important to me to understand the anarchy of language. Um, that is, it, it's something that I re resonate with very deeply, um, that I don't think a lot of people understand. But when people try to ask me about, oh, but how can anarchy possibly work? We need the government to do certain things and blah, blah, blah. I, I like to think about um, which government was it that, 
that established the English language, or language itself. Okay, everybody, today we're going to start making sounds with our mouths, and you have to make these sounds, and these sounds mean these things by law. And without the government coming in and sorting that out, how could we possibly have learned to talk? <laughs> I mean, it's the most beautifully free expression of what it is to be human and to interact in human community that there is. And it's just mind-boggling to me that people don't understand and appreciate and delight in that fact. And uh, that's why I get... Pre I'm particularly perplexed, bemused, rankled by the, uh, the grammar, grammar Nazis who would... Uh, who are... Uh, oh no, absolutely, you have to say this particular series of words in this way, otherwise you're, you're not saying it the right way. Whereas in reality, if I am communicating sounds with my mouth and you understand what those sounds mean, that is the miracle of language right there. And it does not matter gram grammar or anything else. It matters communication. That is the base of this. And that's why any language that is not dead is constantly evolving and changing and mistakes in grammar and spelling and what have you eventually, repeated often enough, become the rules that then future generations will be sticklers about. You didn't say it in the, the right way. So I, I, I think language is absolutely beautiful, amazing. It is the purest expression of of human connection and and interaction that there is, and it is anarchistic at base. So yes, absolutely, freedom and language are linked together in my mind. And and uh, language and sound is extremely important. Absolutely, the combination so, of yeah. sounds. And I think any writer worth his salt recognizes that um, it's one thing for something to read well on the page. It's a completely different thing to read it out loud and to appreciate the sound of it. So I mentioned James Joyce earlier, but uh, for people who are interested in Joyce and maybe have read some of his work, go out and find the recordings. There are recordings of him reading passages from uh, uh, Finnegan's Wake that are available. That it, it's, it's, it's great to hear that because when you hear him reading it, you get a sense of what that book really is and what it's meant to be. Because if you're just reading it on the page... You might, as I know a lot of people that I was, uh, I studied it when I was at Trinity College in Dublin, and people were saying, oh, this is so pretentious, and he's just showing off with all these puns and things. But when you hear him read it, you get the sense of it. It is, it is a delight in the creation of language. It's about expression. It's about fun and play. And you get that when you hear him read that, that you wouldn't get just by reading it on the page. Agreed. Uh, play, playing. What do you have to say about playing? What do I have to say about playing? Well, as a uh, as a father of two young children, I do a lot of it in the most literal child sense. <laughs> I play with yeah. my children all the time, so there's that. Um, but I would say I just fundamentally, I I'm a person. I have a sense of humor. I delight in comedy and laughter and those sorts of things. And that to me is play, is laughing, making people laugh, having fun. Often that takes place in language because jokes and other things are often done in language, but not always, I suppose. But uh, that's that's my idea of play. I like linguistic play, um, but I like all sorts of play. And, uh, you know, like anyone else, I like games. Although I must admit, I am not a gamer, and I haven't played video games in a couple of decades now, and 
Uh, it's always surprising to me when I see grown adults who play video games. I guess that's a thing now, and I guess that's just part of culture, but it just seems strange to me. <laughs> I have so many other things to do with my time than that. Um, but playing with my kids is one of them. Is, is life a game? Uh, I guess you could look at it that way. I don't think that's the way I fundamentally look at life itself. Because um, I think that uh, at least the connotation of game is merely play. That there's only, it's just, there's no meaning to it. I think that might be a very nihilistic way of looking at life ultimately. I understand that it could be a a way to get yourself out of certain mental ruts uh, to start to think of the possibility of play and fun within life. That's, I mean, that's obviously a good thing, but I wouldn't reduce it down to a game, no. But, but meaning, uh, what, is, what is meaning to you? What is meaning? Um, meaning is, is what we make of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I guess my hesitancy with applying the word game to life and instead searching for some sort of deeper meaning is that it plays into the idea that there is, if we look at our life as simply a series of events that happen, and it's, you could look at, you know, these horrible things that happen to you as well, that's just kind of cosmically humorous. It's just, you know, the the gods, the fates playing tricks on me, and oh well, it's just a game, I'll just play along with it. Oh, whatever. Um, I think that closes the door on the possibility of the, the the deeper side of life and existence and what we as human beings are capable of, which to me is about creation and production, making things and producing new things, leaving the world in a better state than it was before you got here. That to me seems to be, if we're to approach something of a meaning of life, that would be at the base of it, something to do with creation, which is a human trait, ability, that we have to envision things and to make them happen in the world. That is an amazing, incredible gift. And it always strikes me that the, you know, the the psychopaths and the forces that are uh, arrayed against us are generally the ones who uh, delight in destruction and tearing down things that others have created. So I I see meaning in creation, um, which could be, I mean, you could think of it as a type of play or game or what have you, but I think there are other ways of conceptualizing that. Like we, um, our relationship to nature as, as gardeners, perhaps. That, I, I think that would be the, the absolute base way in which we would understand it. That would be the first sort of level of human understanding would be from working the soil to create to, to essentially to cultivate life, to cultivate new life. And of course, that's what we do as human beings. When we procreate, we have children, we cultivate new life. I think that that is the, the sort of base level of it. And then we can analogize that out into all of the other things that we can create using our vision, our minds, and then applying that into the real world. Mm. What is your relationship to nature? Do you get, do you get to be in nature or use nature? In your daily life? Daily life, I would say no, um, because we do live in an urban area, but it's an urban area in a rural area. So um, I, I, I'm not very far from nature. And although in the winter months, we haven't been doing quite as much of this, but in the summer months, we tend to go camping or going out to 
um, places. Uh, other than that, I get to go to parks in the urban area on, yep. if not a daily basis, at least a few times a week. But yeah, it's not as close to the soil as uh, I think would be ideal. What, what, what was your um, relationship to nature when you were a kid? Were you outside in, in nature playing? or uh, Again, I grew up in very suburban areas that were very close to rural settings. So I, I mean, but I was never, I was never on the farm or we weren't constantly out there. But the thing that I, I probably miss the most about Canada um, is the mountains and being so close to the Rockies. Um, it's just, it's nice to get out there. Um, there are places out there in the Rocky Mountains that are some of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. And uh, I don't know, I just, I'm, I miss that experience of being there. Um, there is absolutely something to be said about being literally grounded in nature rather than in some urban environment with concrete and um, asphalt and nothing organic and real around you. Uh, that is stultifying and horrifying. And that's why this, the visions of a future of us being ensconced in some VR pods and doing all of our interaction online is, is not in any way appealing to me. That is the vision of a nightmare horror reality, not the, the vision that I have for a future that we could have as human beings living in a world that combines, yes, the technology and the comforts of modern living with actual real, real world experience of nature itself. Those things are not necessarily, they, they don't, they're not logically contradictory. Let's put it that way. What about social uh, interaction? Like how many people do you interact with uh, outside of your work life? Like, and how important is, is just being social? Yeah. Uh, well, I think like most adults, it becomes more difficult as you get older and you get your family, um, you spend more time with your family and then you have family and work. So it's less and less social engagement time. But since I'm in the band and we tend to practice every week, so I'm, I get to see my bandmates every week and then we go and play gigs and meet people that way. So, uh, I, I have some social interaction, but a lot of it is centered around my work life. Yes, I have social interaction, but a lot with people that I've met online or people that I know through my work. Um, you were talking about uh, the psychopaths who want to destroy. Why do you think they are so hell-bent on destruction? I uh, keep going back to this uh, moment of insight that I had back when I was a teacher. Um, before I started going full-time with the website. And I was teaching at a uh, at a kindergarten here in Japan. And I remember there was a an activity where there was going to be some sort of marathon that was going to run through the town. And so they were getting the kids to color in these flags um, that they would then wave as the runners were running by, you know, to cheer them on kind of thing. So it was just a, a make-work busy activity for the children, I think. But anyway... Um, the, so the kids were allowed to just take this flag cutout they had and just color it whatever way they wanted, you know, make it pretty. And uh, I was watching the kids doing this, and I there was a, a bunch of them doing it, and I noticed a couple of girls sitting side by side. And one of them, um, they were both happily engaged in just coloring whatever way they felt like. And one of them was just kind of making random squiggles and just colors here and there. It just looked like kind of a mess. 
And the other girl was very carefully, very methodically coloring a sort of rainbow pattern one bit by one bit uh, across the flag. And, uh, and they were both happy doing what they were doing until the girl who was just kind of making the random squiggles looked over and saw how pretty that very methodic rainbow sort of thing looked compared to her kind of just sprawling mess, which kind of just looked like a mess. And when she noticed that, I could see, I watched as the sort of the gears started grinding in her brain and she was processing this and look at that, that's so beautiful and mine is so messy and uh. And so what did she do? She picked up one of the, her crayons, reached over and started squiggling and, and making a mess on the other girl's paper. And to me, that has always been my vision of that psychopathic urge to destroy. It, I, I, in a sense, I suppose I could feel sympathy with people who cannot connect to that creative side of human nature and cannot experience that for themselves. And as a result of that, in their frustration, rather than encouraging, cheering on, applauding, appreciating the creations of others, they want to destroy it. No, no, no. If I can't do that, then neither can you. And that, to me, is the fundamental urge that we are facing up against. I think most people, being regular people, um, who have the creative urge and take appreciation of the beautiful things that can be created, may not be able to understand that mindset of people who only want to destroy what others have created, because they, in a sense, are frustrated. They can't do that themselves. And that's the way... I, I, I tend to envision that struggle that's going on right now on the broader geopolitical scale and everything else. Where does that come from? I, uh, I, I wouldn't presume to know. I think there is something to do with human nature involved in that. I mean, obviously, again, I'm not saying that little girl was a psychopath. I'm saying there's something about human nature that rather than simply being appreciative of the great achievements of others, we tend to get jealous so there is that natural tendency, I think, and um, it's not like it's something that can be explained away. It can't be, you know, uh, it can't be taken out of human nature. But beyond that, I think, I do think psychopathy is an actual neurological condition that is demonstrably, creates a demonstrably different brain pattern of activity and also demonstrably different experience of the world than people without that neurological condition, to the point where psychopaths are incapable of empathy, inc incapable of understanding, experiencing the emotional effects of what they are doing on others, or experiencing other people as anything other than objects to be used in the pursuit of their own ends. And again, I can't explain why that is, um, but I think it is an observation that needs to be made. And when it is made, it's consistently found in scientific studies that I've pointed to before that uh, psychop psychopaths and sociopaths tend to rise in the ranks and tend to populate the higher upper management of most major business enterprises. I mean, that's, and politicians. I mean, that's got to tell you something about the way that the power structure of our society is is made and why certain types of people are attracted to those positions of power. It, it, it explains a lot as to how we can explain that phenomenon. Why are there psychopaths? What does it mean? How does that, I mean, that's, that's above my pay grade. I can't explain human nature or why it is what it is. Do you think creativity is a cure? 
I would like to think so. Um, that sounds rather pie in the sky. I mean, I'd like to talk to someone like uh, Dr. Robert Robert Hare um, or people who have studied, devoted their lives to studying psychopaths and see what they would think about that. Um, hey, have you ever tried just getting them to color in a flag? <laughs> Maybe that will help cure their psychopathy. I, I doubt it would be that simplistic, to, to be honest, but maybe. What about isolating people? Hmm. Yeah, this is where you start to get into the real, the real question. Because if, let's just say for the sake of argument that my analysis is 100% spot on and there are people with identifiable neurological conditions that make them such that they want to dominate others and that, that they have no capability of understanding the, the impacts of their actions on others and they only think of them as objects, then what, is, what do we do with that? Do we start isolating people from society? Do we do we create some sort of island somewhere where we just ship off all the psychopaths? Okay, go fend for yourselves. What do we, as people who do experience empathy and understanding of others, do in that situation? And I, if I had the magical, easy solution to this, I would be the first to tell you all about it. I don't. I don't think there is an easy solution for that. I don't think it can be simply as simple as, okay, when you're, you know, if you want to run for political office or something, then you have to take the psychopath test. And if you fail, then too bad, because I don't necessarily trust the psychopath test um, that, that are presented. That could itself easily become a tool for manipulation, which will inevitably involve some sort of subjective process whereby people can be, oh, you know, you have psychopathic tendencies, so we'll exclude you from from office or what have you. And uh, uh, me being me, I tend to think it would probably be the psychopaths who would get into positions who would be able to then determine who is a psychopath and then use that as a weapon against whoever they don't want. So I think uh, the idea of excluding people on some institutional level from human society cannot be the answer. Having said that, I would say if we were to go back to what presumably would be a more natural basis for human society than governments and institutions and these establishments that we've created um, in terms of actual human community, I think every human community that's ever existed has had to deal with the problem of, if not psychopathy, although probably psychopathy, but at, at least criminality. And our only, uh, at least in the developed, modern, free, democratic Western world, our only response to criminality is, okay, lock them into prison until they've served their time, done, paid their dues to society, whatever that means, for however many years is set down in the law books, and then you let them out and go fend for themselves, which cannot be, I think, the basis for an actual justice system in, in any meaningful sense. It's just a retribution system. So how do you... Isn't it always the, um, the psychopaths who are sending people to jail? <laughs> That's, yeah, that does seem to me that it's not, it, it doesn't seem like that would be a natural human. I, I, certainly revenge and the, uh, the desire for retribution, I can understand that, especially if you've had a loved one killed by someone else. Obviously, you want retribution. But that neglects that there have been many, many other ways that various societies have have dealt with these problems in the past, including... Um, the restorative justice techniques that are that have been trialed and, and used in various test settings and other things in the Western world, but have been 
around in human cultures of various sorts for thousands of years, presumably. Um, whereby, yes, of course, the, the victim of the crime gets to a say in what is happening uh, to, to the person who has committed the crime, but so does the community at large. And the point isn't to simply lock someone away and put them in a cage and then feed them three meals a day until they're ready to be released. The point is to find what it is that will, if not if not make up for what has been done, especially in the case of a murder or something that's, what can you do? You can't recreate a life. Um, but at any rate, something that will return that person into society if they are able or willing to do it. And if not, that might mean excommunication from the society. And uh, again, I think that's probably a natural process too. At a certain point, if someone has offended and reoffended and re-offended against a community and shows no sign of stopping that behavior, there's no possibility of integration. And a community might make a decision to exclude someone from their community. But then again, I I would think that that would have to be an, a voluntary uh, process. If there's some government that comes in and says, you must not deal with this person, that seems, again, not the ideal way of dealing with things. But if I, as a person, know that this person has offended and reoffended and stolen and murdered and done whatever else in the past, I wouldn't want to deal with that person. Um, so I think... Why, why are we unable to deal with all these psychopaths that are mass murderers uh, on, on state level, international level? Because... As a, as a society, as a world society, we are unable to, to deal right. with them. It, it is because those positions exist in the first place and that we have been taught that they ought to exist, that they need to exist even. Without these positions of power over millions of people, then the bad guys will take over. If we don't have an armed gang of thugs being uh, being stewarded over by a government, then another armed gang of thugs will take over. So we have to have an armed gang of thugs. And who is going to be the first one in line to be, okay, I'll take charge of the armed gang of thugs. Of course, it's going to be the people who want to use that power for their own ends. None of this is surprising. The problem is that um, I liken it to the Matrix, whereby uh, in that in that story you uh, might know um, the 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 Matrix that we see in the Matrix movies is not the first iteration of the Matrix. Originally, when the AI intelligence created the Matrix for people to live in, they created a perfect world where everything was perfect and everything worked perfectly. But people would pull themselves out of that because it was too unbelievable. They didn't understand. This is not real. This isn't, I don't believe this. This isn't right. People need a more sophisticated form of control with challenges and, and various things, variables put into that to make them believe that, okay, so there's a struggle and I can make my way through that. And I think similarly, I think the the form of gover- governance, government that we have arrived at in the 21st century is, you know, the 15th generation of forms of control over the human species, going from pharaohs and whoever who literally paraded around as gods on earth telling people what to do, 
well, obviously, I don't think that would fly for most people today. So you need to get more and more sophisticated forms of governance and control. And eventually you have this, don't worry, we have this system whereby there's three branches of government and the, we set power against itself to keep it in check. And we have this Bill of Rights or Charter of Rights and Freedoms or whatever it's called in your country that will will cage the government and make sure it has to play by the rules. And, and it's, it's, it's government by and for the people. You get to vote every few years and that will change if there's a problem with the system. You have a part to play. It's a very, very sophisticated system that has an elaborate mythology behind it, which is taught to us as history. Okay, so this is how the government formed, and this is why this system exists as it is. And so most people believe in that system, which is why I think um, they find the idea that we do not, in fact, need governments at that, in that, the way that we do. it's unthinkable. It's You can't even uh, imagine it. So, you know, of course, some bad people are going to get into positions of power, but don't worry, we'll be able to vote them out. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, like, uh, it's a hopeless uh, situation then, do you think? or No, you, you... I don't. If I thought it was hopeless, I wouldn't be here. There is hope. No. And I don't mean mm-hmm. hopium, um, because there's mm-hmm. no, no end to hopium that gets floated around every... Well, I was going to say every few years. It's every few months at this point. The new savior who's going to swoop in and save it all for us. Um, I think that's childish cartoon thinking. And I think it has been indoctrinated into us by um, Hollywood predictive programming since the time we were children. So I understand why people want to believe in those types of narratives. But no, hope is that, no, there is a way out of this. And we can. The human species is incredible and dynamic and amazing. And it will I think, solve these problems, but it will be an incredibly hard, difficult, generations-long process. And it will involve, I think, actually, at base, it will come down to the way that we raise our children to understand this world. If we continue to raise children in authoritarian systems of control and top-down governance, and this is why things are, and don't try to change the system, just work within the system, and if if we just continue to raise children in the same way to understand the world in the same way we will start we'll continue to get the same results i think so i think at the basic level it will ultimately come down to to parenting and to setting a different vision of the world for our children um but easier said than done and as i say that's a generations long process or or yeah or 15 generations long project <laughs> and and also i mean obviously given one of the things my work tends to concentrate on is the technological means of control that are available now that were not available in past generations. And that does put a different emphasis on things. It does create a sort of foreshortening of events. We do do not have as much time to sort of play around and find our way as we did before, because the stakes get raised with each iteration of the technology. But if you take a look at the broad expanse of human history, we are in an age which I know people don't like to hear this for some reason, but we are in an age which is relatively, throughout human history, one of the the most bloodless in human history. And I know no one wants to think that because, you know, well, say that as a Yemeni who's getting bombed by Saudi Arabia or something. Yes, of course, there is war and bloodshed and other things that happen. But it is not as ingrained into human society, just an everyday part of life, the butchery and the bloodshed 
that um, used to be very, very, very much a part of everyday life for people for most of, if not all, of recorded human history. And uh, people who say that we are in some sort of hor uniquely horrible age really haven't studied history. No, there has been times in which bloodletting and, and violence was much more regular and normal everyday activity than it is now. At least people have a sense of that being an aberration or something that needs to be toned down. Um, in times past, I think the blood, the blood desire for, of many human beings was completely unbridled. And I think that has been a change that has taken place over the course of a long time. And it would be fascinating to really study the, the modes of parenting and what the parent-child relationship over the generations and how that has changed and how that ultimately gets reflected in changes in human society and what we expect as sort of, you know, normal, civilized uh, discourse and interaction with other people. Yeah. Do you, do you think that the bloodletting uh, that you were talking about earlier in history compared to uh, an AI digital bio prison state system, which, which one is worse? <laughs> Yeah. No, I, I, again, this is why I say that my work often focuses on the technological forms of tyranny that are now available because, uh, yeah, is it any better to have a bloodless but completely unfree society? No, of course not. Um, but that's, that's the way it's often presented to us. It's always, will you give up your freedom for security? So, don't worry, we'll we'll make it a less violent society. It just means we'll completely monitor and control everything you do all the, all the time. So basically, you live in a prison, but you know it's a lot safer, right? So yeah, I'm not making an argument that safety is the only priority, and if we can just eliminate violence, then everything will be certainly not. Um, and so that that is precisely why I think the technological tyranny that is coming into view is existentially worrying, because uh, once that gets established and and takes over, essentially, then I don't know wh when, if, or how that, that can be removed, other than some sort of, you know, giant meteor strike or EMP pulse or what have you that sends us back to the Stone Age. I don't know what else would really reset a system like that. Do you, do you think uh, about yourself as a, as a very mentally stable or strong person, or... I don't tend to think of myself that much, but <laughs> I guess if I were forced to, uh, yeah. I mean, I, here's something that I often, often get from people who are writing into me is, you know, how do you, how do you do this type of work and maintain, you know, you don't seem like you're flying off the handle. Why, how do you do that? Why? You know, I, I get so worked up by these things. I, and uh, that is just, I, I don't know how to answer that because it's like saying, well, I don't know. I'm me. <laughs> I, I can look at these things that are going on and see the gravity and the depth of these things and how very serious the position we're in and all of these things, but I can also maintain a sense of humor and I can also maintain regular social relations and contact with other human beings and I can uh, I can balance things and I'm not... Uh, people would probably be surprised in my everyday day-to-day -day interactions with my friends and things. It's not like the only thing I talk about is the new world order, man. I, I'm a regular human being. It's just that yeah. I also have this side where I can analyze and see what's coming and try to warn people about it. But before you started um, uh, cleaning out the rabbit hole, um, do you remember yourself as being 
emotionally um, disturbed by you know the the media at that time you know the stories they were telling about what was you know i guess it was 9-11 that started your your journey into that but before that were you was it like a slow was it a process that started then as uh or or did were you always like not kind of like able to rationally look at what's going on and think well i think think i think i've just always been perceptive and able to see to see flimflam when it's presented to me and one example that comes to mind is i remember being maybe 12 or 13 years old and watching the evening news i was uh, i was watching it with my dad i remember there was some sort of news report and i can't for the life of me remember what it was about at this point but it was something about this company and this amazing new thing they'd just come up with and whatever and why you should buy it, essentially. And I remember looking over at my dad after that played on the news and saying, was that a news report or was that a commercial? And he just said to me, I think it was a commercial, son. <laughs> and, and you know, th- that sort of thing. Like, I could understand if you're just kind of, if you don't have the critical thinking faculty switched on, you might just see that and just say, oh, that's the news, and oh, okay, this is a great product. But I, I've just never been the type that wants to put, be put into that kind of hypnosis and not notice what is right in front of my face. So, And I, I, I don't know why, why, again, I can't describe why that is, but I've just always seen those sorts of things, and I've always questioned authority. Uh, people tend to get the impression I was, you know, the teacher's pet straight-A student or what have you back in school, which... I, you know, to be fair, I was a straight A student, but <laughs> but I was the one that always questioned the teacher and tried to argue against the teacher and w- would write things in the you know final exam paper and things that were going against what they had taught and things like that. And luckily, thankfully, throughout most of my school days and academic career, I had teachers and professors that were generally open to that and generally encouraged that. So I was very lucky in that regard. I know a lot of people get the curmudgeonly teachers that if you don't say exactly what they said, they're going to get angry with you. I was always encouraged and fostered with my um, distaste for just simply accepting what authority is telling me. So however it is, I managed to excel and thrive in that system. And that has led me along the path to this. So that's why if you really look, I think at the bigger overall story of my life, it's perhaps not surprising that I've ended up where I was, where I am now doing what I do now. It's just, it took me a long time to get there. I guess it, the, you develop with the technology and the situation that's that exactly right. I mean, I often yeah. think back to when I was in high school and we'd have to do like the project, you know, what are you going to be? What do, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now research that career and interview someone who does that and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I remember doing that project in junior high and I, well, I want to be a writer. And, oh, my mom knows someone who published a book of poetry once. I'll, I'll interview her and whatever and all of that. But I, I, I literally could not have even imagined becoming a podcaster because that literally didn't exist when I was growing up. So yes, technologically, societally, things have changed in a way that has created something that I couldn't have even imagined ahead of time. But I think all of the skills and and things that I were developing in my childhood, in my youth, have served me well, including my linguistic abilities. Mm. Fantastic. Um, My my page here, uh, since I've been drawing through the whole conversation is completely packed with details and uh, I have no more space for, uh, 
for any more. Right. Well, that sounds like a good uh, wrapping up point for that conversation. But perhaps now you can explain to the audience what's going on, where, how you, why you do this, how you do this. Okay, yeah. So I had this idea that I wanted to make portraits of people that I find interesting that have yeah, intellectual, mental landscapes that are interesting. And um, and I wanted to do them through a kind of like my, my, my art is, is basically based on drawing and, and uh, a stream of consciousness, uh, just doodling my way through whatever comes out. And um, I thought that it would be interesting to see if that could work as a, as, as a portrait project through a conversation so that the conversation is manifesting itself through in the drawing, uh, of course, through me and, and, and my style and, and, you know, that details that I will put in. So, uh, but I've, I've had a, um, I've had, <clears throat> had a problem in, in why would I, how would I choose the, 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 what do you say? Subject or object? Subject. <laughs> I am not an object. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Subject. So, um, uh, when, um, when all this, uh, all this, the mayhem that has, uh, the pandemic that has been going on the last two years, I just, picked that up and, and thought it's good to to do this with people who are actually in my opinion uh, freedom fighters and you're a freedom fighter in in my in, in my uh, in in this in in my mind because you are teaching people about what is going on and um, and uh, the only way to be free from this tyranny is to learn about how it works that's the only way to be free for everybody and it's not so the only way, I, but it is an important, I mean, it's an well, essential yeah. part of it, yes. Yeah, without knowledge, yeah. we are, yeah. yeah. I so, agree. Um, and in fact, yeah. now that I think about it, because I have often, <laughs> it's funny, the, the hardest question I get is, so how, what's your title? What, what, how can I introduce you? And I'm like, <laughs> I always don't know what to say, because am I a journalist? I guess. I'm a podcaster? I'm a webmaster no i'm a teacher i actually think that's probably fundamentally what it is that i i do or at least the way that i approach my work i am trying to teach people about these subjects so thank yeah. you for giving me that word yeah and uh, and also uh, so so the the project became uh, um, um well yeah I, I forgot what i was going to say but it was, it was about <laughs> uh, <laughs> about how um how this will I don't know if it works, but you know, uh, in, in art is very. You can either be an artist that is. Uh, I mean, there's a million. There, there's as many ways to be an artist as there are artists, I guess. Um, uh, and, and to me, I find I find art history very curated by the elite. Again, you know, it's they are they are deciding what what should be in the art world and what shouldn't be. And uh, I think that anything an artist make is art and it's valuable and it is a part of art history. It doesn't be, has have to be acknowledged by the elite or by anybody. If it's made, it's there. It's part of art history. And so you're Marcel Duchamp signing the uh, urinal. Sorry. You're Marcel Duchamp signing the urinal. This is art. Exactly. Well, <laughs> but we don't know. Anything what, what art can be art. <laughs> but, but, but if it isn't made, as you were saying, you know, make mm. making art, and, and living and making mm. and creating is so important. And if it isn't, if it's not not made, then it's not going to mean something. I would in the agree future. with that. Art is a process. I would tentatively exactly. say that. Yeah. yeah. Um, where so, can people see your work? Do you publish it somewhere? Uh, well, I have I, I have a website that I am very bad at at uh, at uh, updating. It's called ReadyMade, 
um, back to Duchamp. My name is Ready. Uh, my surname is Ready. So I I play with the ready-made. Um, um, right. Yeah. The theoretical aspect of ready-made uh, art history uh, in, in my name, uh, readymade.com, R-E-D-D-Y-M-A-D-E.com. And I have a ready-made art at Instagram, where which I'm faster at posting, and this will be posted there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, we, you know, to, uh, to make art about something that is, uh, or, or someone that is uh, teaching or that is doing something important, uh, for society, and uh, that's 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 why I chose among amongst other you. You are number eight uh, that I've done now. So um, I'm just going to continue doing this because I, f- I find it uh, a very interesting way of spreading something else, some around this. You know, because we were talking about language and how language is uh, very important, but visual language is also very important. Yeah, and of course. Right now, visual language is used in so many ways in, in propaganda, and people are not uh, thinking about what they are seeing. I mean, yeah, you can see the video effects and how they can change the video into looking like something else, and then you're manipulated by that. But it's, it, is, it can be much more subtle than that, just colors and repeating colors and patterns and symbols. And, and I, it's, I love uh, Mondrian. I have no idea why I love Mondrian. It's just exactly. it's yeah. beautiful in a weird way. I don't know why. So it's like music also, you know, art or visual. The visual language is, is also like music. You, you can, yeah, you can enjoy it just like music. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, great. I hope uh, some of my listeners will check you out and see what you're doing. Um, and just to, okay, so I really don't know what's going on here, but you were recording yourself making that? Okay, so so I've been I've been drawing um, the whole time we have been speaking, okay. and I've been trying to focus on what you're saying, and mm. at the same time drawing and putting the details into the drawing. And uh, it's a it's a pen drawing on paper. I'm not going to show you the no oh, no I like okay. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, and then I will uh, I will uh, scan it and uh, and uh, work clean it up a bit if there's some mess. Not much, but a little bit. And then I'm going to work with the colors that I, afterwards, I go through the conversation and the drawing and I think about the conversation and then I will add the colors uh, uh, digitally on my, uh, in, uh, on my computer and then print it at the end. So it will end up as a print. And cool. then I will show... This is fascinating. And I have talked about truth art in the past, but I should put more emphasis on it um, going forward because absolutely, I this is one thing I always try to stress. There are many, many, many different ways to get this information out. And I do a certain style, news-type presentation, very serious, usually. Um, but absolutely, art, music, all of these things are yeah. great ways of reaching people that so I important. will never be able to reach. Exactly. Awesome. So, yeah, thank you so much for taking part in this. Well, and, thank uh, you for uh, making me a subject. I am honored. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>